Hey, it's Justin, and I have a big announcement and personal invitation for you. This May, we're inviting a small group of people to Austin to learn how to grow their wealth tax-free and get access to some of my personal friends and experts in the industry. We did something similar last year, and the feedback was incredible, so we set aside a few tickets for non-Mastermind members to join us for this event. You'll spend some time learning from Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows, and one of my favorite books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor Podcast, who will share with you how to find fulfillment in success. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. Plus, when you register, you'll have the opportunity to attend a one-day course the day before on vetting deals. If you want to learn our process so that you can make great decisions, there's no better teacher than Hans Box. This is our most requested topic, and it'll be an exceptional course. Seats for the course and the one-day event are limited, so if you're interested, please grab your ticket today. I always say you're just one connection, one decision, and one strategy away from true freedom, and I look forward to helping you on your journey. Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live or click the link around this video and secure your ticket now before we sell out. Hope to see you in Austin this May. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. We're set up and we're okay. It's getting really, really hard to keep that discipline. I'll say that. When the Tesla Model X came out, we had it for like the three-day long weekend test drive. And it was like, okay, this is the one. We're going to go back and buy this. And I went, I was at the dealership or at the, the, you know, the showroom and we're talking and I'm like, nah, yeah, we could finance this or we could, uh, we should put money down. I don't know. Let me, I'll be right back. And I went and I got a Starbucks coffee at the domain and I called my wife and I'm like, hey, we're not going to get this car. She's like, what? Why? This, it's, it's, it's literally my dream car. Now the Cybertruck's the dream car, but like, it's literally the dream car that we wanted. And I was like, no, there's, there's a duplex on Knuckles Crossing that I think we could get for this. And she's like, okay. And there, there was no argument. She just goes, okay. Because she saw what, what we were doing and what we were building. And that thing could have paid for two Model Xs in the cash flow that it gets. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I used to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Sometimes the one thing you want to happen the most is often the best thing that never happened. And while it can be difficult to see in the moment, 
hang in there and have faith because life will surprise you in ways you can't yet see. My guest, Trey Hardy, knows this all too well. He's experienced countless setbacks and moments in life that didn't seem to be going his way. But without them, he never would have become the world's greatest athlete. His accomplishments as a track and field athlete are quite remarkable. Trey is a two-time Olympian, two-time world champion, two-time U.S. champion, three-time Texas Relays winner, an NCAA champion, a four-time All-American, former NCAA record holder, and 2012 Olympic silver medalist in the decathlon. Pretty good for a guy who didn't even take up track and field until his junior year of high school, which, by the way, wouldn't even have happened if he hadn't been cut from his basketball team. In this episode, Trey offers up priceless advice for anyone who has big dreams to succeed in life. We talk about his journey to becoming an Olympic athlete, his comeback after a severe elbow injury, and the smart steps he took to turn his earned income as an athlete into cash-flowing assets. That and a whole lot more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Trey has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. This gift is perfect for those of you who do a lot of traveling. He's sharing a video outlining his hotel shakeout workout routine. This is a quick set of exercises you can perform to get the travel out of your system and reinvigorate your mind and body. You don't need any equipment, and it's perfect for small spaces like a hotel room. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 83. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Trey Hardy. All right, Trey, welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I am ecstatic. I'm happy to be here. I was just, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I was like, wait, when, was, when did I meet Justin? And we met just going to town, jumping up hills and, and sweating our tails off about a year ago, maybe a little, little less than a year ago. That's right. You know, it's, it's funny because we have a lot of people, a lot of mutual friends, a lot of people kind of rotating around in the same ecosystem because you're really good friends with Tim Nicolive from Acton MBA. And then you sold your house to my dear friend, John Roman. And so like I had heard like all these rumblings and then it was really funny when I connected the dots. It's like, oh, this person I've been hearing about from two of my closest friends is you and I've been working out with you. And by the way, for those of you that don't know any of Trey's story, you're going to learn it's incredible, but it's very intimidating to be working out in the same group. And I'm talking small group, two or three people with an Olympic decathlete. <laughs> so I just have to, you know, go out there and say that, but I also feel really good that I could hang as well. So yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hope, you know, I was as underwhelming as it could have possibly been that those days, you know, man, well, I'll tell you what, it seems like you haven't lost a step uh, whatsoever from I mean, you'll probably say that you have, but from an outsider's view, I am just impressed with the shape that you're in today. You're not competing like you were in, you know, a couple of different Olympic games and you are just ripped. You're, you push yourself. You do such great physical activity. It's very inspiring and very impressive. Thank you, first of all. But I wish I could say that it was just this nice carryover, you know, like you retire from athletics and or any sporting career and you just maintain that 
love for physical activity and fitness. And it wasn't, that really wasn't the case. And I think when you and I worked out together that day, that might've been my second or third time. I, I really, with intent, went into exercise in three and a half years, you know, like it had been a very long time, but since then it, it yeah, reignited, you know, I didn't, I wasn't training for performance anymore. I was training for the rest of my life and training to be able to play with my kids and swim and throw them into the pool and, and run and chase with them. And now it's this, that's, that's my, my goal is to be able to still beat my son at basketball when he's, you know, a sophomore and junior in high school. So that's what we're training for now. Oh, I love it. And what great memories to empower you and to motivate you and to strive for it. So cool. I, I've got to tell you, I mean, you pretty much destroyed me with that frog jump that I think is just like a natural thing that you guys do in, in track and field and, you know, but man, and by the way, you run your own little uh, workout group that uh, so many people rave about where you do these, you know, wind sprints and all these different uh, high intensity like circuits and series. It's it's really fun to see. Yeah, with a guy who had been coming really consistently and it had been like this really small group of men who were coming consistently. He's like, hey, Trey, you should think about like rebranding this because it, it really I was just calling it like the sprint workout. You know, we were going and doing sprint drills and learning like the skill of running fast. And then we would go run fast and the workouts were really hard. And he's like, maybe you should just call it like a sprint workshop and then like an optional, you know, workout afterwards or something. And I was like, why? And he's like, I think people are a little intimidated. I'm like, oh, okay. So rebranded it. And now, yeah, the group is pretty big now. And it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. It's like just clockwork at, you know, six 30 in the morning, every Tuesday morning at the little public track down there at Austin high school in downtown Austin. Well, we've got a lot of people in the Austin area that listen. So maybe we'll have some people that are not intimidated that show up and, you know, get some lessons from you because you're a great teacher. You do a very good job of like helping everyone see that they can do it. And even people that aren't in the most incredible shape are showing up and they're doing it and they're getting a great workout because the goal isn't to be this extreme athlete that's showing up. It's just to get better than where you were yesterday. Right. hundred percent. That's the nail on the head. You know, everyone has different starting points, but everyone is just out there doing that just kind of that plus one, just plus one each day, uh, getting a little bit better and learning the skill. And there is no perfect, you know, unless you're like Usain Bolt, like we can all do better. Right. And that's kind of the mentality I have with most things, I would say. Yeah. I mean, your career is incredible and I'm excited to kind of get into it. I'm curious though, when you were young, did you want to be an Olympic athlete? Did you like have these dreams or visions where you were competing in the Olympics or did that come along the way when you started realizing that you're actually good and you are excelling more than the rest of the world or the rest of your peers? Yeah, it was a, a late revelation. Honestly, when I was young, I, I wanted to play in the NFL or major league baseball or the NBA. Like that was my dream was to be Larry Bird. I was like, that guy can do it. I can do it. Let's go. And then as life happens and, and you see, you know, in retrospect, the path you were on and the people in your lives and, and how things fell, I mean, track and field really just chose me. And like my life as a decathlete chose me. It wasn't this thing where I just saw it and was like, that's what I want to do. You know, like I grew up during, you know, Dan and Dave, you remember 1992? Oh yeah. Reebok threw tens of millions of dollars at those guys to be the best in the world, the best athletes in like a marquee event and sell shoes. And it kind of blew up in their faces, which made it one of the most infamous 
this and arguably a better campaign for them than had they both done really well. But that was, I didn't have that moment. Like I didn't have that, you know, looking at watching Michael Johnson run in 96 or I didn't have those moments. It was, it wasn't until I found myself deep into my, my college career and I had stepped into the Olympic trials and I'd only done four decathlons. Like the Olympic trials was like my fifth ever one. And I looked around and to my left was the world champion. To my right was the eventual Olympic champion. I ran with them. I was just as fast, if not, I and mean, I was faster than they were. And I was like, oh, these guys are, are mortal. You know, I, I'm, I'm a long way from where they are, but I think I could do this. Like, I really think I could do this. And it, something, the light switch went off. You know, I reprioritized everything. I started to more, you know, professionalize what I was doing and started making the sacrifices that it was going to take and had a, it was on a mission. You know, I'm going to make the next uh, Olympic team. So that was in 2004. And then, yeah, what feels like an eternity when you're in the middle of it, but really four short years later, I, I made the, the team and was off to Beijing. That's incredible that in that short of a period of time, you could say, all right, I'm all in, I'm going to become an Olympian. And you did it. And, you know, to just not have thought ahead of time to not have been training, because a lot of people, they train their whole life for this, right? They're, they are groomed as a child to compete at the highest of levels. So your story is, it amazes me because you're kind of like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I should see how good I could be. <laughs> and then boom, you are one of the best in the world. And I, I, I have that perspective too. Like I was blessed, you know, and that was kind of the thing that, that, not kept me going, but that was a big tenet of my, my, I want to call it work ethic or my ability to get out of bed every day was really that, man, I I've been given these gifts. God has blessed me with these talents and I want to be a good steward of those talents. I just want to make sure that I do my best to reach whatever this body and this body of my mind and soul's potential is. I want to see where that leads me. And at, at all times during my career, I was firm in that belief that I was put on the earth to be a decathlete and to do what I was doing for this, this time in my life. Now for those people, and by the way, I love that. I think that's incredible because you've got to draw your passion from somewhere and what a great place to draw it from. For those that don't know what a decathlon is, can you explain that? And then additionally, I'd love to hear what you naturally excelled at and what you really had to like double down to get to Olympic levels at. Yeah. So Zooming, yeah, zooming out historically. So in 1912, Jim Thorpe, what many consider the greatest athlete to have ever lived, he was he won everything at the 1912 Olympics. King Gustav or King Ferdinand, one of the kings, like of uh, where was it? Maybe Stockholm or Sweden or somewhere, was giving him his medal, and he had won the long jump, the broad jump, the, the modern pentathlon, and he said, "You sir, are the world's greatest athlete," and he handed him his medal. And from then on, the winner of the Olympic decathlon was given that moniker. And so this shaped and molded the type of person I think that it attracted, that was attracted to this well-roundedness, this robust application of like skill and speed and power and endurance and, and fortitude. And so in the events, they kind of represent all of those attributes. So it's a two-day event. You do five events on day one, five events on day two. And it's the 100, the long jump, shot put high jump and the 400 meter dash on day one. Then you turn around the next day and you run the 110 hurdles. You throw the discus, pole vault, throw the jab, javelin, and then uh, run the 1500 to close it off. And so in high school, I was just a pole vaulter. 
That's what I was recruited for. And so that was kind of my ace in the hole. I always pole vaulted well. You know, some meets are better than others, but that was always an event I had in my back pocket that I never fretted about. I wasn't ever worried about. I scored a lot of points in. I was never outside of the top one or two guys that were jumping. And it just, you know, I think for a lot of the athletes causes a lot of grief. For me, it wasn't, that wasn't the case. And then as I grew, you know, I signed my scholarship papers. I was book scholarship, you know, to Mississippi State. I started messing around with other events and it turned out I was really fast. So I ran 1083 in the 100 in high school as a senior. I was like, you know, 6'3", 155 pounds, but could run. Looked like a little skinny distance runner. And then started to develop ad muscle and speed and power and stuff. And uh, ended up running 1026 in the 100 and started to develop the other throws and started to develop the ability to jump far just because I was so fast. It's an old man's game. Like the decathlon's not just get out of bed. Oh, you're a good decathlete. It takes a long time. I, I think I equate it to this. Say you have like two clients or two customers and the sales cycle is four years long. And if you want to get both customers, it might take you 12 years. You know, it might, you might miss a couple of sales along the way and to get them both, to land them both in the same time frame might take you 12 years. And so that was early on. I had some coaches that saw potential and said, listen, we're not going to just, you know, I, I wasn't a good thrower. So we're not going to just throw every day to try to get you good at the throws. We're going to train like you're going to be doing this for 10 years. And it was a very long-term approach. We slow cooked, you know, every single thing. So by the time I got to that 2008 Olympic, Olympic trials, I was incredibly well-rounded. You know, I eventually had good events all around and didn't have many weaknesses, but no one likes the 1500. It's awful. Like <laughs> it's the last event. I, you know, I weighed 210 pounds on six, five. That's a lot of weight to carry around the track. I was just yeah. I, I, I didn't ever, ever fell in love with that event. I, I started to enjoy the training for it. I really found myself there later in my career, but man, it's, I was never the fastest. I didn't just have it. And, um, I trained my butt off for it. One year made a really concerted effort. Like I'm going to run four thirty. That's I wanted to run four minutes and 30 seconds for 1500, which is like a four forty six, four forty seven mile. And wow. I was in the best shape of my life and ran 441. Wow. Best shape I've ever been in, right? And then there was another season of the Olympic, the London, London Olympics. I already had a medal in tow. I went out really, really slow. I knew I was going to win silver and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the heck out of that run. And I closed normally. I just, it, it just felt good and easy. And I ran 440. Wow. And I wasn't really super fit. Like it just didn't matter, you know? So it just was this thing for those years after, like, it didn't matter if I trained for it or didn't train specifically for it. I was going to run 441 plus or minus a second. And it hurts just the same. And it hurts yeah, just right. the same. It's just the worst. I, I can't believe that you were able to compete in so many, I mean, to be back-to-back -back days, that many events, to run the 1500 that fast, it's just incredible to me. Um, and by the way, I'm glad you bulked up because your senior year, six foot three, 155 pounds, that's like you're a cross country runner. You're not track and field. You're not a decathlete. Like you got to have the muscle to be able to do that. So hearing kind of you finish out at six, five and two ten, you know, that makes a whole lot more sense. Now I am really curious though, how on earth did you 
come into pole vaulting? You said you're really good at it. How, how does one just decide that they want to be a pole vaulter? Yeah, I my freshman year was just walking through the track. We were, I think we were doing basketball offseason. And I just saw somebody and across the field pole vaulting. And I'm like, what is that? And like, oh, that's the pole vault. It's like, well, who's that guy? Oh, that's, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, like Brian Tomlinson, I think was his name. And I'm like, oh, is that good? Is he doing well? Like, I didn't know what good was. And he's like, is that good? He's like, yeah, that kid, he just won the state championship. I'm like, oh, I can do that. That's cool. That's, I'm going to go try that. So I pole vaulted for two weeks, my freshman year, just learned it. You know, and you don't just like start at the back of the runway, holding at the top of a pole, bending it and stuff. You're clear. I mean, I cleared like eight feet. There's nothing significant. And then came back the next off season and I pole vaulted for two months, got a little bit better. I jumped like 13, six that year, which again, that'd be really good if I were a female high school vaulter now, like it wasn't that great. And then came back the next season and in the middle of the fall, right as basketball season was about to start, we weren't having tryouts. We weren't doing anything like that. We were preparing for our first tournament. The coach approached me and just said, hey, Trey, we don't, we don't need you this year. I was like, uh, I'm like, okay, what's, I mean, okay, I'll play. You want me to play JV? That's fine. I mean, I was a junior, would have been kind of embarrassing. Sure, I'll play, I'll play down. That's okay. He's like, no, 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 we don't need you at all. Just go be a pole vaulter or something. And like, I was a good basketball player. Was I the star? Not at all. I was a starter. You know, I could play. I was, I was four years away from being the best athlete in the world, but like, you know, I'm not like, anyway, like heartache, cry myself to sleep. Like in my, you know, that as bad as it could get, like in your mom's arms, don't understand why the world is so terrible. It was not great. You know, like all it was, I was being removed from all my friends. I was being, it was embarrassing and I didn't want to go to school the next day. Parents made me go. My friend's parents boycotted the first few games of the season because they did no one, there was no good reason. Right. So my immature, like 17 year old self was going to stick it to this guy and be the best pole vaulter, you know, anybody had ever seen like, okay, he wants me to be a pole vaulter. I'll show him. So ended up getting, I got second in state, you know, in the state meet that year, came around for my senior season and set the indoor state pole vault record. That tracked me, got me noticed by a couple of schools and got a full scholarship offers to like smaller schools, but got like noticed by some SEC track programs. And so that was like, all right, here we go. This is my ticket to college, get a little academic money, little book scholarship here. We got a full ride. Let's go. That is such a cool story. And it's also just great to take the the long view because the short view is like how could this happen to me you're ruining my life i i don't get to play basketball my favorite sport but not even recognizing that that's going to concentrate you in the thing that you're going to become the best in the world at you know and and that that's just it's so neat to see you know it's the the whole idea of garth brooks's uh song right of of unanswered prayers mm -hmm. and it's cool to see how it plays out where there is a bigger picture than just that. And I'm curious, did the coach actually recognize that? Did the coach want you to concentrate there or did the coach just feel like, you know, culturally it wasn't the right fit? You know, did you ever find that out? I, I wish I could tell you. And yeah, yeah, we had the opportunity to figure it out. I really don't want to know. Don't really care at this point. Like now it's, it just makes the story that much better. 
he and I both were inducted into our town's, you know, sports hall of fame. And we were in the inaugural class. I think it was 2011, maybe. So not that, I mean, seven and a half, eight years later after this, this incident, we're both inducted into the sports hall of fame. And like, he like made a joke that I should thank him in my speech for cutting him from the team. And so I like had a retort during my speech that like, I can't, you know, congrats on getting in here despite cutting the best athlete in the world off of your team. How many games you win that year, coach? Like that, it was, so it's not like contentious, but there's no love lost either. Yeah. 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 That that's interesting. But what, what a cool, I actually just like that. You said, Hey, I don't need to know. This is just the the way that the the cards were dealt and I'm going to roll with it. And I wasn't going to make the NBA. I wasn't going to do, I might've played like NAIA basketball at my best, but I'm happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I'm sure. And and by the way, I really want to know you, you glossed over this getting a silver medal. And this needs more justice to it. But I think there's an even cooler story that leads up to it of kind of what happened and what it was like going to the Olympics and even battling some injuries and everything. Yeah, I think I mean, that would it would make a for like a nice four hour podcast. But the the short (laughs) the short version of it. And for those of you who are tuning in, you can see this nice, beautiful zipper that I have on my elbow at the 2011 world championships, I was trying to, to defend my world champion, my, my world title in the javelin. I was throwing as good as I've ever thrown, throwing as hard as I've ever thrown. And it was down to my third attempt and I'm at the back of the runway and everything feels completely normal. I come down with a bunch of speed. I put my leg down, bam, javelins flying out super fast, but my elbow legitimately explodes. And, you know, everybody's pretty familiar with like Tommy John surgery in pitchers. This was like twice that they could not, they couldn't find my UCL. It had exploded off of both the attachments, both off my ulna and uh, radius, ulna and uh, humerus. Sorry. And they were, I mean, it was like, Hey, this is, this is not good. You know, I got, I came back home. I won the world championship, by the way, still, I ran with this like super casted up arm, like a robot and held on and, and won the title again. And then I was stuck. I was at home. Uh, I was driving back from San Antonio and I got a, the call from the x-ray tech or from the, the diagnostic guy uh, that was down at the San Antonio Spurs office where I got it done. And he's like, Hey man, this is, it's not good. Like it's gone. We, we, we can't even really see it on these images, but then that's that uh, you got to get this taken care of. There is no rehab out of this. Good luck, you know, like out the door, like see it. So I called my mom. My mom happened to work at uh, St. Vincent's hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, as the controller for that, that healthcare system and that hospital. And she uh, just happened to be six floors above champion sports medicine clinic, which is where Dr. James Andrews, the father of orthopedic surgery, the guy that put like drew Brees's arm back together before he was moved on to the saints. She walked down, talked to his assistant. He called her within like an hour and just said, I know exactly who Trey is. We got to get him taken care of. When can he be in? I have a space on Thursday. This is on Monday. So I fly home Tuesday afternoon. I'm in surgery at, you know, 6am on, uh, on Thursday. And I'm waking up out of surgery in this like whirlwind. And like, it's half anesthesia, half like the gravity of what's just happened hit me. And I can't move my fingers. They had had, they had to displace my ulnar nerve, like that your funny bone, when you hit your funny bone, that's what you're really hitting. So now mine's no longer my elbow. It's up near my bicep. So all that nerve reset, I couldn't move my fingers. I I just started crying again. You know, I just start bawling and 
my mom is a, is a strong woman of faith. And she's the one that kind of got me through the basketball stuff of like, look, there's a reason this is all happening. We're not, we don't know it yet, but all we can do is our best and you're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. This is okay. And I only had eight months until the, the Olympic trials, sorry, eight and a half to the Olympic trials and 10 months to the Olympics. Like no one, like a pitcher has never even come back and is not their full self for two years. No one has ever done this. And that's kind of all I had in my head. And so I had a moment, you know, rehab is, is awful. But during those first, that first kind of week of rehabilitation, I said, you know, I, I can look back on this time and I can, I can be one of two things. I can be regretful and look back and, and know that I might've missed some steps or tried to rush it and try to get back too soon and do really serious permanent damage. Or I can look back and just have no regrets. I can use every waking moment in, a, in the pursuit of this goal and this dream of, of being an Olympic champion and being the best version of myself and exploring my, my physical potential and knowing I've done everything within my power to get back, to give myself a chance. And that, that set the tone. So I was, I was the number one athlete in the world. I was not really unbeatable. Everybody's beatable. Man, I was, I was it. That, London was going to be my games, you know? So now I'm sitting on my couch and I can't, I can't even touch my fingers together. What am I like, just this feeling of like, what am I going to do? But resigning in the fact that I don't know, but I can do my best. And so from that day forward and several hundred thousand repetitions later of just silly, stupid, unsexy, but disciplined and committed movement, I got myself in a position where, you know, I threw the javelin one time and I threw it at the Olympic trials eight and a half months later, and it went like 70 feet short or 80 feet short of what I, what I had thrown just months before, but pre-surgery, but it was just enough for me to make the team. So wow. now I'm in, now I'm in London. I've got house money. Now it's wow. Okay. I've got six more weeks to let this elbow cook to do everything in my power to be ready for the elbow to be even more ready. Here we go. And then I find myself having just a really solid meet and I'm in silver medal position, but the guy in third can throw the piss out of the javelin. And if I throw what I threw at the Olympic trials, I finish fourth or fifth. I don't win a medal. And so I'm at the back of the runway and I'm talking to my coach and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to let it, I'm going to let loose. And he's like, you sure? And I was like, what more could I have done? What more could I have done to be ready for this moment? And I still feel it right now. And I just, I almost even feel like crying. Like I, went back there with more confidence than I've ever had in anything in my life that everything was going to be okay. And I threw within four and a half feet of my all time best. I threw nearly as far as I did in the track meet that I busted my elbow in the first place, 10 and a half months later. Wow. And you can Google it. It's on YouTube somewhere. And there's a video of my entire celebration sequence. You would have thought I had won like a hundred million dollars or like uh, you would have thought I'd won this like <laughs> mega jackpot lottery. I celebrate for at least four minutes, just running around. I jump in the stands. I'm hugging my, my, my coaches, my agent, my friends that were there supporting me. My parents, unfortunately were sitting way too far up in the stadium, but I go berserk and everyone's kind of like, does Trey know he didn't Trey knows that there's one more race left, right. That he didn't win this. Right. And it just didn't matter. It was just this, I've never felt anything like that. And that insanely gratifying victory. And then it's fun getting to tell the story because on paper, everyone's like, man, so you won the world championship, then you won another world championship, but then you only got silver. Yeah, that stinks. I'm like, that defined 
the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get which is why I put together this Mobile Home Park Masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. That is just such an incredible story. I can't believe you continued competing in the world championships with a totally blown elbow. You finish running, you're literally wrapped up as you're running with an unintact elbow. You win that. And then most people, and by the way, you're favored to win it all. And then you had this injury and most people probably counted you out. Like you weren't even going to make the team, right? And the mere fact that you made the team, you competed, you got silver. That's just incredible. And what a difference that time than the previous Olympics, right? Yeah. The previous Olympics was just this, it was too big. It was such a big thing for me. I was, I was in metal position going into the pole vault best event for me should have moved myself up. I was throwing jab really well. And I was probably the fittest I'd ever been. I was going to run four thirty if it, if it took that. And I, it was just too big of a moment. And I crumbled, I literally physically, emotionally crumbled and did not clear a bar in the pole vault. So I went from third place and was going to be fighting for silver there to dead last place and dropped out and just, you know, woke up under the stadium crying again. It was just like, what is happening? How did this happen? You know? It was just too big of a moment for me. I think that story, though, is so important to the overall picture of what happened, because without that moment, without that experience, 
I don't think you would have been prepared to weather this storm of adversity and injury the way that you did. And so as painful as it is, it's just like getting cut. It helped define who you were and kind of moved you closer to, to getting that silver medal. And most people, I mean, to, to have the opportunity to even compete to get into the Olympics is such a great honor, but to actually medal, I mean, the, the, the percentage of people, I mean, it's such a small percentage. You, you think about like professional athletes, that's a very small percentage. It's a smaller percentage to medal in the Olympics, to go to the Olympics, let alone medal in the Olympics. And so when you just think of what you've accomplished, that to me is mind boggling, like the odds for which this can happen and that you were one of them. Yeah. It's something like when you're in the moment, you're surrounded by those people. So it is, it's this, yeah, of course we're all Olympians. And then like, yeah, of course, yeah, you've got three medals. I've got two, yeah, you know, you've got a medal. Yeah. It's just what we do. But like the further, the older I get, the further away I get from that, the more what you say rings very, very true of how fortunate I was to be in those positions and to, and honestly, just, just be proud of my younger self, be proud of those decisions that, and that, that kind of guides me today. Like, okay, when I'm 50, what am I going to be proud of? Like the 40 year old Trey, what am I going to say? Like, man, I'm glad that younger version of myself was smart enough to see, you know, X, you know? Well, and you always have the story to relate to anyone who has the shortcoming that we're all going to have at some point, you know, especially when you get to coach your kids through it, where it's like, hey, I was on the biggest stage in the world and look what happened to me. And I had two choices I could make. And instead of giving up, I made the other choice. And it was probably one of the toughest choices that I ever made. You know, I just think that that's so cool. So you're this two-time world champion. You're this two-time Olympic athlete. You won a silver medal. But I think it gets even cooler because you just went back to the Olympics this last year as a commentator. Talk about that a little bit. That had to be just amazing. Yeah. And again, born out of unfortunate circumstance as well. So in 2016, I'm preparing for my third Olympic games. Again, it's going to, I'm feeling good. I'm healthy. I'm not quite in like, I'm at the tail end of my prime, but stuff's going really well. Best fall training I'd ever had. And it's mid January. I'm getting ready to, for a, a pole vault meet and I dislocate my foot. My takeoff foot completely comes out. I'm like staring at my heel, like the bottom of my shoes looking right at me. And I'm, uh, I'm, you know, freaking out for lack of a better term and spend the next five months just trying to walk without pain, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how can I stay somewhat fit? How do I figure this out? How do I just get back to the Olympic trials? If I can get there, maybe I can sneak in, make a team or whatever. And, and really nothing held up. I, I couldn't get through the first day, strained the hamstring that was on that side. Cause it was just underprepared. Who knows if I would have made the team odds are probably would have been close but it just wasn't in the cards and it was just too little too late. So I, again, I'd done everything in my power and accepted the, the outcome of the track meet and wasn't going to make the Olympic team. And so I land in Austin, Texas, um, sit next to my wife, phone rings or sorry, phone. I got a voicemail. It pings when I turn the phone on and it's a producer from NBC. And he's like, Hey, if you want to come down to the track today, we'd love to, to have you on air and talk a little bit. I'm like, ah, man, you know, sorry, write him back. I'm in, I know I'm, I'm in Austin. Sorry. Maybe, maybe next time. I appreciate it though. He's like, no, 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 we'll fly you back out. We'd lo really love to see how you are on camera. And I'm, I look at my wife, we're still in our seats. I'm like, I really don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. She's like, you're doing it. 
I'm like, okay. <laughs> what a good wife. <laughs> yeah. So that's late afternoon in Austin, Texas. The next day at noon on West Coast time, I, I'm back in Eugene and I'm on the track with a microphone in my hand talking about men's triple jump and women's pole vault. And it's first time I've ever, I'm live, live. It's like, you're live on NBC. And it's the first time I've ever been on camera. First time I'm holding the microphone. And I had a blast. It was, it was invigorating. It was fun being out there talking about my friends, talking about the, the sport that I care about. And I do two days of track and field. And I'm walking out of the production area back to the airport. Executive producer bumps his head out of the truck. He's like, hey, Trey, do you want to go to Rio? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> and so I get to join like uh, an old teammate of mine, uh, Sonia Richards Ross. And we fly to Rio and we do our very first big track meet is the Olympics and huge learning experience. Still don't know how anyone put any faith in me to do that, but it's become this part of my, my year every year. I get to call track and field. I get to display the joy and, and try to explain these events to people so they can understand them and get to know the athletes that are the best in the world at what they do. And it's just been amazing. I, I was one of the luckiest you know, thousand people that got to watch in person, the Tokyo Olympics. I, I got to be in the stadium watching world record after world record, medal after medal, story after story of like this human experience and human performance at its highest level, all because I got hurt in 2016. So again, same arch, same thread being woven in my life of that. I should probably rejoice a little bit more when bad things happen because it seems like the better, better things come out of those things. <laughs> well, I love that you, you do turn it because it could be easy to be like, oh man, uh, you know, I'm so living in regret for this third Olympics that I should have been in. I know a lot of people that would have lived that way, but you see it differently. You see it as what the gift that it gave you, not the curse that it was. And I think that that's really important. I also think it's important when you have like strong faith to back you and just kind of keep you sane and let you know there are bigger things than just this. Like this isn't as big as we make it out to be. There are greater obstacles. There are greater needs and uses of our gifts. And so you're, you're doing that. You're displaying that. So how cool is that? You, you would watch all these Olympic games anyway. Now you're getting paid to be there in person, interact with these athletes, hang out with your, you know, co-anchors and co-commentators. It, it's just awesome. Yeah, it really is. And I'd want to reiterate, like when in those moments, I, I, you don't have your wits about you like this. This is hind, hindsight. I get to say, wow, what a blessing this was. But man, as an athlete and a competitor, it is infuriating. It's really bittersweet where I, I, I recall moments when I was, calling the Olympic decathlon final, they're running the 1500. And my producer steps in and talks in my ear and says, Hey, Trey, you need to pick it up a little bit. I know you're sad, but you got to be excited. Well, cause I was visibly, and you could hear it in my voice, how sad I was that I wasn't out there. And so there's a, in those moments, like I afforded myself the grace to be upset, but only as time passes, you realize, man, that was, that was a really benefit. That was a big benefit to me and my family that that happened. My daughter was born a couple of months after that, and it really made it easier for myself to, to step away, you know, because I was still going to get to be in touch with the sport. I was still going to be involved. Uh, I love it. I love it. I had Chris Pronger, who's also an Olympic athlete, NHL, great legend, yeah. you know, on the show. And uh, he's moving here to Austin and uh, is part of one of my investment groups. So I'll have to make sure that you guys connect. I think you'd enjoy 
one another's company as uh, as just the best of the best at what you do. So cool. And I, I love even beyond this. So like we could look at Trey Hardy, this amazing Olympian, but we can also look at you as, hey, you you're, you've opened up a new chapter in your life. You are an investor. You're an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear about some of those things. I, I know that you kind of got your start in this space through reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I know that you have parents that were both CPAs and corporate controllers. And so maybe that exact path doesn't run, you know, in, in your family, but recognizing the importance of these numbers and, uh, you know, just the importance of details probably does. Yeah. The one thing it definitely taught me is that I don't want to be an accountant. That was it. <laughs> like those dinner conversations were just like, is this really what y'all want to talk about right now? Really? <laughs> Why? Who cares how much the MRI is? Who cares? Like who, like, so then, and healthcare in and of itself was a real snooze fest anyways. But I mean, going back to like rich dad, poor dad, it was that my, my parents clocked in and clocked out were salaried employees. They squirreled away all the money they could. They made in, they, they had vested, you know, they had 401ks. They had all these, everything that was there. And it was more about the saving part of it that, that I learned from them and, and really the delayed gratification of what investing should feel like. You know, this isn't a casino. This is planting seeds. And that's really what I got out of it. But I learned as I got older and I learned as I started to make money was the difference between an asset, you know, that can, or a cash flowing asset versus just bonds and equities and things that are just, for later, like things that you can put in a SEP and don't have, I don't even want to see it. Don't even tell me about it. I'm just going to give you money and you put it in the SEP and I trust my advisor kind of thing versus like something like real estate. So every, every red cent that I made in track and field, I bought Austin real estate. I bought my home. I bought rental properties. I bought stuff that I knew when I retired or when the, when my, my abilities were gone and no one was going to pay me to run track anymore. I didn't have to run out and get a job. I didn't have to run out and, and start trying to figure it out while also needing money to support my family. And so that was my, you know, my big aha moment is I, I won a medal in 2009 and I used that capital as a down payment, uh, like the, the cash bonus you get from you know, a sponsor as a down payment for my first house and lived there only like two and a half, three years before I built my next house with my future wife. And we kept the old one. And that was the rental property that turned me on to an entire, I was like, Oh my wait, Okay. You mean the renters paying my note? I can write off the interest. And in like 10 years, we're going to be this far down the, the schedule of the mortgage and there's inflation induced debt destruction and all of these byproducts of, and uh, Oh, and when I buy, you know, mulch for this house and there's some left over, I can use that mulch at my house and still write it off in this LLC. All of the benefits of this stuff was just, it blew my mind. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to buy anything else for myself. I'm going to buy more single family rentals in Austin, Texas. And I mean, anybody that was buying single family houses in Austin, Texas in the last 30 years looks like a flipping genius. And, and so, yeah, that afforded me the ability to, to go to business school. I went back, paid tuition to business school, didn't have to worry about where money was coming in from. And it just, the, those lessons from my parents of just sowing seeds uh, and just working at stuff so that when the time came and I needed it, I had it. 
And that, that's kind of, that's, that's where I'm coming from. You know, that's incredible. And by the way, you would have done well in any market with that strategy, but it's a good thing you picked Austin, Texas, because you have had some exponential return on those homes since you started investing. I mean, it's this is a boom economy. And I know you just built a gorgeous new home here uh, this past year, which is exciting. And so I, you know, it, it's cool seeing what you've been able to build. And instead of uh, frivolously spending, that you're intentionally buying assets that produce income. That is music to my ears. It's what I love teaching people. So well done. Yeah, it's getting harder and harder, though, now that we're kind of we're set up and we're okay. It's getting really, really hard to keep that discipline. I'll say that there was one, like when the Tesla model X came out, we had it, like we were re- We had it for like the three day long weekend, uh, test drive. And it was like, okay, this is the one we're going to go back and buy this. And I went, I was at the dealership or at the, the, you know, the showroom and we're talking and I'm like, nah, yeah, we could finance this or we could, uh, we should put money down. I don't know. Let me, I'll be right back. And I went and I got a Starbucks coffee at the domain and I called my wife and I'm like, Hey, we're not going to get this car. She's like, what, why this it's, it's, it's literally my dream car. Now the cyber truck's the dream car, but like, it's literally the dream car that we wanted. And I was like, no, there's, there's a duplex on knuckles crossing that I think we could get for this. And she's like, okay. And there, there was no argument. She just goes, okay. Cause she saw what, what we were doing and what we were building. And that thing, Instead of, you know, that thing could have paid for two Model Xs in the cash flow that it gets. We liquidated it just last year to build this beautiful home. But like it was, it was those kind of little tiny decisions that are just delay the gratification now so that everything's okay down the line, you know? I love it. That, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you've been able to do that. And yes, you're right. The more comfortable you get, the less inclined you are to keep doing that. And so I think all of us need to constantly remind ourselves that when things get a little comfortable to still keep the discipline going, we can enjoy life and we should enjoy life today, but not completely at the expense of tomorrow. It should be both. We should focus on both. And you model that really well. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. I love seeing athletes that instead of going from just stratospheric numbers and income to you know, bankrupt or in debt. I love seeing athletes. And I know that Olympic athletes, I mean, you get a nice bump from endorsements and sponsorships, but financially it's a lot different than being in professional sports where you're competing, you know, every day or every week over, you know, a long season, but for you to be able to take what you've earned and turn that around so that you don't have to work so that you can be what I call a lifestyle investor. I think it's incredible. But then you can focus your time and energy on the things that are most exciting to you. And I'd love for you to talk about your new wellness practice that you just started. Yeah. So that was kind of it. So going through this process and retiring, it was, you know, I'm going to attach myself at the hip to the, what seemed like the most successful people that I knew. And every single one of them to the T said, I wish I could go back and spend more time on my kids. And so my definition of wealth is just that I want, I, we spend less than I make and my time is my own and I spend my time with my kids. And so I, I don't step into any endeavors that are going to take me away from that too much. Now there's temporary sacrifices in order to set that up down the road, but for right now, that's it. I, I've started and wound up several businesses. All of them made money, but none of them were for me. And now I finally feel like I'm aligned with 
my past and, and history and the lessons that I learned in the decathlon. And that made me the, the best and most successful decathlete that I could be the number one athlete in the world uh, for four years out of my career. How do I offer that? Where's the, where's the intersection between that and the, and the general public and people that want that type of outcome in their life, whether it's, you know, increasing life expectancy, increasing healthy life expectancy, having a better relationship with their family or their work or their job, or improving just physical fitness wellness. I'm trying to figure out how to craft that. I don't want to call it a product, but I was out raising money for a completely other venture. And I had a series of dinners and everyone has the dinner at the end. Like what I'm looking for is this, you know, and like, I really appreciate it. I really respect all you guys. It would be awesome if you could be on board. Everyone was like, yeah, this is, that's a good idea. We really see that. That's, that's, good. that's a good idea. There's cash flow there. We think that opportunity is for you down the road, but can we just pay you to tell us what to do? And I'm like, what? We think you've got something here. Whatever you're saying, we'll do it. Like in terms of the conversations always led, how did you train for the decathlon? How do you do that? Like all the things that made me a successful decathlete are things that could be applied in everybody's life. And so right now, we launched on January 3rd, and I've got a small beta group of 10 people that by midsummer, we're going to have this, this nice marketable product and kind of the playbook for everybody's desired outcomes. We have surgical oncologists, we have uh, lawyers, we have independent contractors, we've got just people that get it and want to spend the money to take care of themselves and to boil it all down, want to be on this journey with Trey Hardy. And I've got an awesome, awesome team of registered dietitians, high-performance coaches, you know, the guy that runs our strength and conditioning programming stuff. He was at the Tampa Bay Bucks. He was at, it was at the Washington Huskies. He was at the Texas Longhorns. He's like, I'm trying to think the athletes under his tutelage. I think he's got eight Olympic medals. He's got three NBA draft lottery picks. Like they know what they're doing and they're on board for all of this stuff. And we're, we're evidence-based, science-driven, and just excited to build a really, really tight knit community of encouragement. And yeah, I, I, I could go on and on about this for a really, really long time, but I'm just finally in that, that zone of alignment where what I used to do, I get to fold that in again, just like being a commentator, I get to fold in that thing that made me just that little half a percent better, that consistent unsexy discipline of doing the little tiny reps, just touching my fingers together just doing all the stuff that no one else was willing to do and getting to help people enjoy the fruits of that labor, getting to help people and educate people and encourage people to do the exact same thing in their own lives. And that, that is Altum Wellness. Oh, Trey, that is just amazing. Your story is incredible. I'm so excited for this wellness practice. Where can my audience learn more about you and this brand? Well, right now we're still cooking the brand. We're going to unveil something in midsummer. So we're keeping it kind of close to the vest, but Altum Wellness will be there and it'll be on Instagram and altumwellness.me is the website right now. It's just a splash page and there'll be, and it's just as our client login so they can, they can uh, pay for the, for the service. But I'm at Trey Hardy on every social media platform. And if you want to just shoot me a note and ask questions and talk to me a little bit about Altum, it's Trey at altumwellness.me. And I'm always available to talk. I'm always available to share advice. I um, love meeting new people. And yeah, that's where I'm at today. Well, Trey, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story with us and so many words of wisdom. I want to end today the way I end every show. And that's this. I really want to encourage all of you watching, all of you listening 
What's the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom, to living a life that you truly desire on your terms, not a life by default, but a life by design? Catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.